Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. Hello, I'm Michael Richard, and welcome to another edition of Fireside FileMaker. John Mark Osborne, and we're going to talk about performance with Wim DeCourt today. I've known Wim for, I think, a couple of decades now, uh, and he's always the most helpful person. I'm not really sure how he finds the time to answer my occasional emails, as well as all the stuff on the forums and, and all the duties at work he has. So hats off to him, and, and please don't flood him with emails because he's so helpful. He'd, I think he's probably at his, at his limit. Um, but Wim and I worked together at VTC uh, quite a long time ago. I believe it was back in 2007. He'll probably correct me. He's got a better memory than me. Um, and then he did quite a few FileMaker Server videos for FileMaker Server 8, 10, 11, and 12. That was a long time ago, but I've always admired Wim and appreciated his involvement in the FileMaker market. And so I've kept an eye on him and, and, you know, like I said, I've occasionally sent him an email when I think he can best answer stuff. And he always helps me out and I appreciate that. But what we're going to focus, like I said, today is about performance on FileMaker server mainly. But Wim knows so much about FileMaker, who knows where we're going to go with this uh, interview. And so I'll pass it off to Mark here because Mark's, uh, you know, our resident uh, super genius. Uh, we needed him here to, to match wits with Wim. So why don't you in introduce yourself, Mark? Thanks, John. Thanks, Mike. And Wim, great to have you. I'm Mark LaRochelle from Productive Computing. And like you, I've known Wim for quite a long time. And um, I've always, like you, admired the work that he's done and the fact that he's so community focused. Uh, his, it seems like his whole mantra and his whole goal is to help people. And he really doesn't ask for anything in return. So, you know, if there's one thing I would say about that uh, is that mantra is is really deep within WIM, but I also find that mantra deep through a lot of the FileMaker community and the Claris community. So it is great to have you, WIM, and I can't wait to get involved and talk more about all the details we're gonna to cover today. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. That uh, that means a lot. Um, so my name is WIM, uh, WIM DeCourts. Uh, I work for Saline Consulting. I have been working uh, there for the last, I would say 10 years almost, or coming up to 10 years. And my role there is to lead the FileMaker practice area. Uh, so Lion has four practice areas these days, FileMaker, Salesforce, AWS, and uh, what we call OSS, everything that has to do with, um, with general web development, if you will. So I lead the FileMaker practice. We have about 30 full-time developers. And my role is to be an architect on, on pretty much all the projects. Um, we have three or four uh, architects in the FileMaker space. Um, so we, we look at, at projects, we make sure that everybody is trained up, everybody um, um, knows the latest stuff, that we make the right technological and architectural design decisions on any project. And secondary to that, in, and the role that I really enjoy as well, is mentoring, right? Making sure that we're on top of our game, but that everybody feels, uh, feels okay with Insoliant and that they have the chance to deploy their skills in the area that they enjoy the best. That's what I do. So Wim, tell me uh, at Saliant, uh, you know, it's one of these companies that's a, probably one of the biggest FileMaker companies in the world, as far as I can tell. And it seems to me from just my vantage point that a lot of times these big companies get out of focus and they can't keep track of 
what's going on with their clients and they can't keep track of what's going on with their the people who are doing the programming. But Slant seems to somehow have avoided all that. Um, they, they seem to be producing really high quality stuff. They're interfacing with the community. Uh, you know, you're always there doing blog stuff and videos and, and speaking at DEF cons. How do you think Slant does that? Because I'm, I've always been amazed. I always thought, wow, Slant's going to get big and they're going to get really, you know, not very good. But they seem to just always be the greatest company in the world. I mean, is that the way you view it? or? I do. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have stayed there because I haven't really worked um, at any place for as long as I have worked at Soliant. I, um, I've worked with other companies, typically on more of a project basis. So you stay somewhere for two, three years and then you move on. Uh, and I've had my own company for a long, long time connecting data. Uh, so for me to be to be working somewhere, and especially for that long, isn't my natural state. So I think it really speaks to how much I enjoy the way that Soliant goes about doing what they do. And and you really put the finger there on the challenge, right? Because as the company grows, how do you, how do you both stay relevant? Because obviously we work in an area that is always changing. The skill sets always needs to be changed and honed and all of that. But also, how do we make sure that we stay in touch with with our customers, that we are very responsive, and and that we we don't become that company that goes dark for three months and then comes back and say, hey. Uh, here's that thing that we build for you. We hope you still like it, that kind of thing. And within Soliant, we work really hard at that. We um, Everybody's assigned to a team. We have teams that are somewhat geographical based, um, but also project based. So there's a lot of cross lines like matrix structure, if you will, um, that's, that are put into effect. And we make sure that everybody obviously has a direct manager, but also we try to have uh, everybody assigned to a mentor so that they can have that kind of mentor-mentee relationship that really helps for both from a technical point of view, but just for general well-being as well. Um, and any client project, you can think of it almost as a pod, right? We have a tech lead and a developer. Sometimes a tech lead is a developer if the project is small enough, but there's always a project manager. Sometimes there's also BA. So we basically form a little pod around the project uh, and that makes it run really well. And then between those pods, we make sure that we meet every two weeks within the FileMaker practice to talk about pretty much anything goes. It could be just showcasing something that we learned on a project. It could be me showing some of, some of the ETS stuff. So um, we work really hard at making that happen. Yeah, I think the the problem is a lot of people out there in these big companies, as they get bigger, they have those growing pains and they don't do the things that, that, that Sline has done. And that just shows that they have really good management and that they're making sure that everybody has the resources they need. They're not just saying, hey, this is your project, go ahead and do it. And then when you're done, you know, let's build a client. It sounds like you're, you know, cross-checking everything. And and that's how you, it, it takes a lot of work, but that's really the only way to do it once you get big. I agree more. It's a lot of deliberate work, right? It's not something that happens by accident. Um, if you're small enough, and even in the early phases of growth, I think you can have the right people with the right attitude and you sort of attract them organically, right? You, you just tend to have a group of people that think about things the same way and you don't have to be so deliberate about doing these things. But as you grow, you can no longer leave it to chance. You have to put the, the, the procedures and processes in place and that in itself becomes a challenge. We, we've all worked with big companies where the process is almost king, right? Where you follow the process for sake of the process and that's not good either, right? So, so 
we try to make it so that obviously we expect people to follow a procedure and a process, but also to challenge it um, because it's only by challenging it that we can evaluate it, whether it's still a valid one or whether we need to change it. So Wim, I've got a question for you with regard to the very large team that you've got. Um, are some are all of those come into Saliant as very experienced or do some come in with some knowledge and you train them internally? Both. Um, and we try to make uh, make it so that there's a healthy balance between the two as well. Um, Claris as a company is doing a lot of great work with um, uh, 42U, um, the university or, or the, the school there in California. Um, and, and we've hired a few people from there, uh, which, which is great because here you have people that have a lot of drive just by the nature of of the of the collective, I guess, of of how they got to be chosen to be participating in, in that program. So um, people come to us because they know Soliant, they like Soliance, they, they like what we stand for. Um, so we get people with experience, but we also try to make sure that we have a lot of people that come in at the entry level and, and we run them through our own boot camp in essence. Can you tell us a little bit about that boot camp or is that just totally, you know, not something Oh, I can. It's uh, obviously we try to tailor make it to uh, to the person, um, but at its most generic form. And I'm thinking back to when we um, when we worked with actual interns, say, right, because that's sort of like the most basic entry level that you can have. Um, we would basically run them through the FTS book. Um, the FTS currently, I think, the last update was what for Pharmaca 15. So it's slightly dated, but it's still very valid. It's still explains all the core Pharmaca concepts really well. So we would have them um, individually or, or in group go through the FTS, chapter by chapter, do the exercises. And then a couple of times during the day, any of our developers would basically go in, see where they are, answer any questions, and then sort of like infuse it with stories from actual projects where we say, you know, we've just covered this concept of, I don't know, um, multi-key joins, right? Just to throw something out. Um, we would then go grab something from an actual project to say, here's what we use it and this is why we use it. Uh, and very early on, we want to make sure that we talk about that decision process, if you will, because as you know, there's always five different ways to solve uh, something. So which one do you pick? And and that process is really important, we think, early on in the development of our developers. Um, so, so we do a lot of that interactive stuff uh, as they go through their learning. So just to change gears here, uh, how many countries have you lived in and how many languages do you actually speak? I think this is a very interesting question to ask you. Uh, languages, I speak four. Um, so Dutch is my uh, native language, French, English, German. Um, there's a little bit of Latin in there somewhere, uh, not enough to, uh, to really call it a language at this point. I have, I am born and raised in Belgium. So I lived in Belgium, Germany twice, the Netherlands, um, the US, Bermuda, uh, and Canada twice. It feels like I'm forgetting a country, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, at least we didn't lose you to the Bermuda Triangle, Wim. It was funny because the uh, the house where we lived was actually just inside the Bermuda Triangle. So I could actually walk to uh, to where one of the corners is in the Bermuda Triangle. How funny. Wow. <laughs> now, I see you've won two excellence awards from FileMaker, one from FileMaker Incorporated, one from Claris. 
Uh, one was in 2002, so that was under FileMaker Incorporated. And then recently in 2015, one was for best practices, the original one, and then the second one was for community leader. Um, I think these two awards really sum up your contribution to the community well. I mean, you know, technical aspect and your your leadership. And, and a lot of times people are technical and not leaders. They just want to sit, you know, inside their cave and program and they really don't want to talk to people. But you're that interesting combination of being very, very extremely technical and also having the ability to convey your information and, and quite honestly, being pleasant about it. And, um, you know, I, what do these, I guess, awards mean to, to people? I mean, are they, are these important? Um, I mean, I've got one, but, um, I guess I'm just looking for a viewpoint on these awards. I mean, you want, you've earned them and, and I'm just wanted to find out your thoughts about them a little bit. I am very proud of, um, uh, of the awards. Um, I think in our industry, uh, in the filmmaker space, certainly they are sort of like the Oscars, right? It's um, that's how, how important I think they are. Um, so I was very proud to get them. Um, we've won a few with Soliant as well as more at the company level, um, and those are really good. They're really good team builders. Um, so it's a great thing. Uh, I really enjoyed them. Um, I've had some people that I mentored that. Not that that was the goal that they want to achieve, right? Because in itself, as a goal, it's not a worthwhile thing to uh, to try to achieve. But it's more recognition than than a goal. But I, I really love them. I'm really really proud that that I have them. Um, and it's it is something that people can uh, can can look at and say, what does it take to get there? Uh, and for me, I, I talked about the mentorship within Soliance, and like I said, we don't say that that's a goal that you should achieve, but it's one of these things that is a recognizable milestone. So you can talk about what it took to get you there. Um, what is the process of of being in the community? What does that mean? And why would you do it? Um, what's the driver? And obviously within the people, the, the 30 Pharmaca developers that we have, I, I try to both entice them and encourage them to be really strong in the community, to participate, to share, um, because you can you can learn a lot too, right? It's not not just about giving back, but you can you can learn a lot. Yeah, I always say that uh, when you teach somebody or share information with somebody, you in turn learn something. Even if somebody doesn't give you some information back, you're teaching them and 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 putting it out there into the world. And there's some kind of thing that goes on with your brain that helps you to to better understand what you're talking about when you explain to somebody. And, and so I, I applaud you for that and encouraging other people. Now, one thing I think that got you those awards was all these white papers. You must have the record for the most amount of white papers ever written out there. I'd have to count them. Um, I think I may still be in second place after Stephen Blackwell, perhaps, but, uh, but I'm getting there. Yeah, I think the one you just released was called OAuth2 and OIDC in the FileMaker platform. It's a sixth in a series, or do you want to talk a little bit about that, tell people about it? Absolutely. I actually just finished recording the, the last of my Engage 2020 sessions. Um, I was only, what is it now, four months overdue. Um, and that one speaks about effective identity and access management. Um, Security has always been one of those topics together with server performance and integrations that is really near and dear to my heart. 
Um, and this pandemic that we're living through has really forced people to look at how they do security in general, right? But uh, identity management and access management in particular, um, th that old model of having all your users in one place, so like the castle with the moat around it, right, if you will, that model is not valid anymore because your users are not in your building anymore. They are not in the office. So how do you protect and how do you track who's trying to get access to your solutions? From where? Who are they? Are you sure that they are who they who they say they are? Um, so there's a big shift going on in and how that's done. And uh, I think I have some really good slides in that engage presentation. And one of the things there fits in with those white papers that Stephen and I have been writing for the last twelve months, uh, because the FileMaker platform already allows you to to leverage a lot of these things. You can you don't have to use a simple username and password uh, and have all your accounts live in your FileMaker file, right? Th those can be um, those can live outside of your FileMaker solution uh, in one central place where it really fits in with with the rest of what you're doing. Um, at an enterprise level, the classic ones, we all know them, Active Directory, Open Directory. But now you can really open it up to, to those other services like Okta, OneLogin, Alt-Zero, Azure AD. Those are great services that do a lot of, uh, they do a lot of work uh, for you. And a lot of that work is in, I don't know, things like contextual authentication, right? Where they keep track of your usual login pattern, like uh, Wim typically logs in between six and seven in the morning, and it's usually from just outside Toronto. So if there's a login attempt that comes from Timbuktu, they'll say, hey, this is not what we expect. So they do a lot of threat analysis for you. There's a lot of AI and machine learning in that background as well that is really fascinating. So your FileMaker solutions can can use that, right? Can take advantage of that. Which is a um, which is a great thing. So those white papers talk about those mechanisms um, that are a little, I would say, a little bit buried in in the Famica platform, but they are there, and uh, and you can use them. They're they're great. The the analogy I'm thinking of is don't lock your keys inside of your car. I mean, that's the idea of not having your passwords and filing FileMaker, even though they're pretty safe in there, it, it's about moving that authentication outside and separate from the FileMaker database so it's not there with all the data you're trying to protect. I, I could not agree more. It's one of these things where uh, and it, it buys instant acceptance from, uh, from both IT departments and security and compliance departments, right? Because they don't like to have multiple identities. And if you keep your uh, I, I should say multiple identity stores. If you keep your FileMaker account, uh, if you identify the user by just a username and a password in FileMaker, and I agree with you, the storage of that inside the FileMaker file is very secure, but it's still a separate identity. It's something that you have you have to keep track of. And obviously where you want to go is the total opposite where you only have one identity and you use it to log into your machine. You log in, you use it to log into the FileMaker database. You log in to access a file share. Maybe you use the same identity to log into your Dropbox, right? So that is what um, IT and more security and compliance departments are after. And we can do that. You don't have to do that username and password thing uh, in FileMaker. Wim, do you think that this is all... Um, driven by Claris International's intention to become a mainstream player in the database world for businesses? 
I would, to some extent, yes. I don't think that I would um, use those exact words, but clearly they want their products to be, one, widely accepted, and two, and they've used this term in the past, right? They want their products to be good citizens in that IT world. And you can only do that if you adhere to standards. Uh, and the classic standards are the ones that we think about when we talk about data exchanges, things like ODBC, JDBC, XML, JSON, these kinds of things. But they also apply to things like identity and access management, right? So, and, and it's all about those standards. And OIDC or OpenID Connect and OAuth 2 is one of those big standards. Uh, in one of those white papers, we actually show one of the newer protocols. Uh, it's called WebAuthN, which allows for completely passwordless authentication into your FileMaker solution. And you can already do that. It, it's pretty darn fantastic. I'm going to bring up something really old, but I, 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 I want to bring this up because I think it's important. Uh, I personally love the white paper you wrote on ERSOT systems. Um, do you still see people bypassing FileMaker security and developing their own these days? Um, anything you want to say about ERSOT systems? I, I, in fact, it would be nice if you actually told people what it really means because I'd rather hear you explain it than myself. So, Sure, absolutely. Um, so ERSAT's systems is basically any construct that a developer would put together that bypasses the native FileMaker security schema. Um, and with the native FileMaker security schema, I mean the fact that uh, a user has to log in and has to pass through that security schema. Uh, so there's an account, no matter where that account gets authenticated, there's an account and there's the act of logging in. As soon as you log into FileMaker, you get assigned a privilege set. Uh, so that's the authentication and authorization. The privilege set determines what you can do, like create a records, view certain records, um, these things, right? So the where those two meet, the authentication and the authorization, that's FileMaker security schema. Very often, people don't like, say, the um, the FileMaker login dialog. They want to customize it. They want to do something else, or or they don't want to create 500 individual uh, accounts inside the FileMaker file because it's a drag to maintain, especially if you have more than one file. So what they do is they set up FileMaker, and it's a feature of FileMaker, where you can set the file to automatically log in, right? So you can specify an account and a password that will automatically open your file. And then once the user is in the file, the developer relies on their own layouts and scripts to present a login dialog uh, and then do the natural checking. So what's bad about that is because of that automatic login into the file, you're basically letting everybody into the file, right? There's no check. By the time they get to the developer's login screens, the user is both authenticated and authorized. And that's typically where it, where it goes wrong um, because obviously the developer tries to lock it down so that there's very minimal things that, um, that they can do or the user who's taken to their login screens can do inside a file. But the simple fact is, and your analogy, uh, John Mark, about leaving the keys in the car, that's exactly that, right? It's sort of like saying, I have this car and I will never lock my doors, but I'll try to hide where the ignition is. It, that, that's, that's sort of like the rough equivalent of that. Um, but anybody can get in your car, right? And once they're in the car, they can hide and, and try to figure out where your ignition is. It's the same with these ERSAT systems. When you let somebody in, as soon as they are authorized, you're basically, in essence, fighting the FileMaker system because 
at that point that you're in an authorized, everything in the Famica file is geared towards giving you stuff, not hiding stuff from you, but giving you stuff. So as a developer trying to put a system together like that, chances that you'll make a mistake that is going to open up more than you expected, they are the chance is not only there, but it's a it's a big chance. Yeah, I think the big difference, and you you said this, but I want to kind of sum up what you said. In an ersatz system, you actually get into the file. In FileMaker security, and tell me if I'm wrong about this analogy, but in FileMaker security, it's not letting you into the file unless you get past that. So you never get into the file unless you're authorized. And there's the big difference. One is you're in the file, and then, like you said, you can get anything you want, even though you're trying to lock it down. But one is, hey, let's just stop people at the front door, don't even let them in, and not even let them get into that file so they have no chance if they don't have the proper credentials. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and if we tie it back to using some sort of external authentication, you'll now have, uh, you, to some extent, you already have that with FileMaker and FileMaker Server. Um, but if somebody were to try to get into your file, there's going to be a log record of it somewhere, right? So so you can trace back and figure out uh, who was trying to do that. And you can, to your point, John Marcus, you'll know that they can get in, right? So there's no chance that they can actually get into your file to then try and elevate their privileges and, and all of that, because that's typically where it fails, right? Once I'm in a file, I have time to figure out what I can do to now elevate my those initial rights that were given to me without me being challenged for them, right? So the developer just gives me rights, and then I can see whether I can abuse them. Okay, so let's move on to how many developer conferences you've spoken at. I, I bring this up because I want to find out if there's any particular subjects you found very interesting and wanted to talk about. Uh, maybe it was recent, maybe it was a long time ago, but I, I believe you've spoken at, at a significant number, at least a, a dozen or two. Um, how many have there been? 25, right, at this point? M my first conference was the... 99 one, I believe San Diego, um, that I attended. And I first spoken, I think, at the 2001 conference that was in Orlando, the Disney one. So pretty much every conference since then, I, I think I may have missed one or two, but that's about it. Any particular subjects you found most interesting? Probably maybe more of the recent stuff that you wanted to talk about. Tell us a little bit about it. Because a lot of people haven't been to the developer conference. And, and uh, you know, it's nice to give them a flavor for what you can find at the, you know, at the presentations there. Yeah, the, the, uh, what I really liked from day one and in, in just going to the, to the conference was it, it opens up such a wide world uh, because here you go and, and obviously as a developer you're you're somewhat narrowly focused on the problems that you have to solve and then you go to a conference like that and you see people solving problems that you didn't even know existed and not only that but they're solving it in a way that you would never have thought of um, and, and I remember going to those four first conferences and and sitting in and I'm going like I don't fully understand what they're going on, but I've seen it done now, right? So I can store that piece of information away um, and, and save it because, because now I know it exists, I can go find it if I need it. So when, when I speak or give a presentation, I, I try to deliver something along those lines, something that is um, one, important, I think, uh, at least in, in my world, but two, something that not too many people would have done. So I, I want to, give them something that opens their eyes a little bit and uh, 
and really gets into gets them thinking and gets them uh, prepared, I guess, for the next step on their journey uh, in, into all of the features of the platform. My presentations typically have broken down into a number of categories. Obviously, I've talked a lot about FileMaker Server, uh, performance, troubleshooting, um, integrations, security. Um, so those are the big categories. And, and there's always something new. Uh, I've given a few on things like OAuth and external authentication. Um, I think way back when, uh, maybe FileMaker 15, thereabouts, we had a standby server. So that was very much about the deployment. There's two presentations that really jump out at me that I really enjoyed preparing for and then delivering. One was, at the time, I was doing work for a um, one of the biggest companies in the world. It's a bank. I can't really say the name because they don't like when I do the... Um, uh, it's linked to Bermuda, but I guess you, you got that one. The um, It's one of those, and I know that... that ties into some of those deployments and backup and disaster recovery things that, that we may want to uh, talk about later in, in this session. The, um, the thing that they wanted to have put together is they wanted to have something that is, uh, in, in deployment terms, what they call high availability, meaning you have a deployment where you minimize the downtime and you maximize the, um, the not, not just minimize the downtime, but also minimize the, the data that is being lost when something happens, right? Uh, so given the tool set in Famica, how do you put that together? And, and we came up with this very nifty approach where we would basically build a giant audit log that gets written automatically to a second server and then server-side schedules that would automatically read from that audit log and roll that forward into a copy of the solution so that you could switch between the two servers automatically it's sort of like syncing but without syncing uh, so that was uh, that was pretty pretty nice and when was that that was 2010 or something like that yeah because there's a lot of features out now that do some things like that you did that before these features were around yep exactly uh, so just the discovery process of doing that that was that was really great and i think a couple of years ago i did a deep dive into scripting and the journey was about trying to come up with an audit log um, and trying to use all the features that were available at the time. And this must have been 2016, something like that. Um, so as we know, the challenge with an, with an audit log is you want to capture the before and after state of a change to a record, and you want to minimize the amount of work that is being done to do that. Right? Because obviously you can go to a layout and, and record and read the value from every single field on that layout. Uh, and you want to avoid hard coding the fact that there's, say, five fields on that layout. If you add a sixth field to that layout, you don't want to have to change your code. You want your audit log to automatically pick up on the fact that there's now an additional field and, and do the before and after. And I, I also, I, I wanted to... I actually, I wanted to not do any work on the before state. I wanted to do everything on the moment of commit, which is a big challenge, right? Because the the commit is when you commit the data. You Whatever you have in your local session gets sent to the server and gets stored so that everybody can see it. So how can you use that moment of commit to read the before and after state at the same time? So that was the journey. And that was um, a lot of, even for me, having worked with this platform for coming up to 30 years, there were a lot of design functions that I had never used with. So that was a lot of fun 
just uh, trying to see, reading the list of all the functions in FileMaker and going like, could I use this, right? What does it do? I've never used that one. So that was interesting. You know, it's interesting because I did a, a project a number of years back and I had a audit log and I was kept tracking what happened on what changes on on fields. And I just had one script that literally grabbed the, whenever they clicked into a field, it grabbed the value. And whenever they committed, it checked to see if the value was different. But it was on every field. So it was just one three or four line script on every single field on object exit and object enter. And that worked really well. But I don't know whether technically it was a good solution from the standpoint of somebody with your level of expertise. When What do you think? The uh, the thing to consider there, and that's the same consideration that I had to make, is how much overhead do you uh, do you? Well, it's the penalty in essence, right? So, how much slower do you make your solution by doing these things, and how fragile is it? Do you have to put a trigger on every field, for instance? I want absolutely wanted to avoid that. Uh, if there was a trigger, I just wanted to handle one, which was the on commit. Um, and the um, the on commit is so interesting and. We may, it's a bit of a segue into really specific, specific technical things, but the on commit at the moment of commit, and the on commit is one of those pre triggers, meaning that the event you can, as a developer, you can handle the event just before it happens, right? It's not a post event where the event happened and then you can, you can do something. So the moment that the on commit fires, the client has the new data, but the server still has the old data. Uh, so that's that's sort of how I solve that. So that realization means that in that sort of like suspended moment in time, you can ask the server for the old data and you'll get the the pre-data. If you ask the client for the data, you'll get the new data. So that's how I got around not having to do something at every single field um, and not having to handle the moment that the user maybe clicks in a field, you capture the before state, but the user decides not to change anything, right? So now you wasted a little bit of resources by trying to capture a before state where you didn't really need to. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that that's wildly uh, cool, actually. <laughs> um, without all the details, which you can't really get into during this podcast because you can't see anybody's screen, you can't show stuff. But yeah, that totally makes sense. And like you said before, part of going to DevCon is about knowing something that's possible and having the general idea to how to do it, then you can go down if you ever need to do it and and, and get the details down in a, a client solution because they've asked you to do something. It's, it's about gathering all this information. I think that's one great thing about DevCon is that you just gather information. You don't have to get every single detail, but if you get the gist of what's going on and, and know that something can be done, then you go two years down the line, you go, oh, I remember this, you know, Wim said about the, you know, tracking, uh, you know, keystrokes and things like that. And he did it a very interesting way. I'm going to need to do something like that. And maybe he figures it out himself or calls you and asks you, to, you know, to help uh, in a project and, and, you know, pay some money to Saline, hopefully at that point, you know, who knows what happens, but it's about getting yourself out there in the world and not being inside of your little cave program. You've got to go ahead and work with other people, listen to other people. They have different ideas than you. Well, you're absolutely right, John. And so much of what we do as FileMaker developers is we see a technique and we start thinking, oh, I wonder if, what if I could use that here or do something else with it? And I think that that's where the community is so good by sharing information and 
then letting the people in it like ourselves just run with those ideas and uh, I think it's an amazing uh, amazing thing I I wanted to ask Wim a question on that when you when you construct a audit log that talks to the server prior to committing the data did you have to use a technology outside the traditional set field did you have to incorporate something that talks to the server directly like Maybe it wasn't available back then, like the data API, but maybe something like an ODBC or some other form of transfer transfer to get that data. Uh, no, we basically um, at at that moment of commit, we would actually do a perform script on server to uh, talk to the server, and and the server still had the old data. So it was just a matter of um, using a combination of the design function so that we know what fields are on the layout, but also the um, the get modified fields function, right? So the client knows what fields it modified. We would turn around, use that, and ask the, the server. And we were actually using um, we were using perform script on server with execute SQL in essence, right? Because we can construct execute SQL based on the get modified fields list, uh, so that we get only the data that um, that we know or data from the fields that we knew were modified. And you sent it all as one script parameter to the perform script on server. Okay. That was good. Of course, you'd need, I, I didn't know how long ago this went. I didn't know if it was prior to perform script on server, even as an available option, but that's a necessary ingredient, but that's great. Love that technique. Yeah. And it, just to emphasize what Wim said, it's all about stopping that commit. So when somebody tries to commit the record, that script trigger on commit record will allow you to stop that process of that action occurring. So the commit doesn't actually happen. And so he's able to run a script, go look at the server, bring back the old information. And then he also has the new information once he commits. So he can do some, that's a pretty interesting concept. I'm, I'm glad we got into that. Uh, I'm glad you talked about that because I, I think a lot of people find that fascinating. You mentioned also using SQL and my I haven't used it very well. So I don't know an awful lot about it other than it's a little bit tricky to, to get right. But I've always felt that it's a slow process and something that you would only want to use very occasionally. Where do you stand on this, Wim? I have a blog post. Um, I was just answering a question on the forums um, earlier today where I linked back to that blog post. I have a blog post at Soliant called The Good, The Bad, and Ugly about Execute SQL. My stance on Execute SQL, I absolutely love it. Um, and it can be blazingly fast. I mean, like extremely, extremely fast. But you have to stay within within its box. As soon as you st start to stray without or outside its box, um, it it just doesn't get progressively slower. It falls off a cliff, slow. That kind of thing, right? So, knowing where that cliff is for you, for your solution, and and for your use case, is absolutely critical. And if you can stay away from that cliff. It's a wonderful thing. It's so fast that it's it's not even funny anymore. Um, so the question then is, okay, where's my cliff and how can I find it? And there's a couple of things in in that discovery journey for making that audit log approach and preparing for that DEFCON session. That's where we discovered the penalty, which is a hefty penalty, if you have an open record in the target table in the user session, and then you use execute SQL on that table. Um, so that's that's where we discovered that. The other one is, as soon as you start to do things that are a little uh, opaque, like the like operator or uh, combining, say, more than two joins or anything like that, right? So that's typically where I try to stay or using any SQL functions 
inside your SQL query. So I try to stay away from those um, as much as I can, or at the very least, try them, measure the performance, and then decide whether that performance is good enough for, for the problem at hand, right? Because sometimes, if, even if it takes half a second, maybe that's not a problem, right? Uh, in other iterations or in other situations where you have to iterate many times, then something that takes half a second is painful. So sometimes you just have to test, measure, and then decide. So let me give an example where I think would be a good use of it is where you go and grab a single piece of information from a single record in another table. To me, that seems what Execute SQL is really good at doing. You don't have to create a relationship like for a preferences or something like that. You go in there and you you search and find the right record and preferences because it might be this user or that user, whatever. You grab what preference you want, which is usually in one field, pull it over. That should be lightning fast. It's when you start trying to complicate things. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is to kind of summarize what you're saying, keep it simple with ex Execute SQL and, and you're bound to, to, to not have performance issues. Agreed. I use it for picking up all my preferences. That's my default way of doing it um, because I don't have to link to uh, to that preference table from every context that I am. I don't have to load them into globals ahead of time. I just go read them when I need them. Um, so uh, absolutely. Did you write a white paper on that, Wim? <laughs> I could. Because that would be a fascinating white paper. It really would. I mean, because it's very interesting to me and... Uh, where I use X2SQL is um, specifically in one project I've got where they're tracking um, fuel tests. And um, for each test, there's a cost saving, and but we don't need to use a calculated field to calculate. So when it goes to a particular site, it just grabs the cost savings as they are at that moment for that site and loads them into number fields. And uh, it's very, very quick. I did write a blog article, by the way, on on using XQ, SQL for preferences. If anybody wants to go on over to Philosophy of FileMaker, there is a, an article on that. I'm I'm in the same boat as Michael. I don't know a whole lot about Xcute SQL, but I'm I'm glad we talked. Somebody knows a lot more, and I feel more comfortable about the way I've been telling people like keep it simple. And you know, Xcute SQL is a great tool. Don't try to apply it to everything. Don't try to over you know abuse its power, and you should be good. So, Wim, let's move into the main thrust of this interview, which is about performance. And let's start with a very, I think, a very important question, which is how difficult is it to determine the performance you're going to get given all of the variety of things that are out there? There's hardware, there's software, there's network, there's design, the software design. How diff, I mean, how people won't know exactly how their stuff is going to, you know, uh, perform on a FileMaker server because there's so many factors. You Yes, you can kind of get an idea, um, you know, by counting these things up, but you talk a little bit about that because I think it's one of the things I, I read in one of your uh, blog articles uh, about, you know, here's how difficult it is to do. You're right. It is very difficult. And the difficulty comes from just the sheer number of variables that you just listed uh, that are involved in, in affecting performance. So, it's tough, and and it certainly has gotten a lot tougher in in the last year, where people's solutions that used to be running running fine on inside their network on the LAN uh, are basically now exposing their warts by remote access. Right, everything is so much lower because of internet and the vagaries of of internet speeds and latency and and all of these things. So 
it has be- it has become an issue with more and more of our customers as well, where they call us and say, hey, it's not working that well anymore, or at least not as we expected it to, um, or not as we used to when we were still in the office, that kind of thing. And, and it's tough when working with a client right now that has maybe 10 users all working remotely and one of two of them keep getting disconnected. Um, so where do you begin? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a performance issue in the sense that they sort of expect things to be somewhat slower if they work from home, that's fine. There's some sort of expectation around that, but the disconnects clearly are affecting their performance, their productivity, uh, all of that stuff. So how, how do you even begin to, to look at that? And there's obviously a process that I follow when I do. Um, and, and that process involves things like we'll get to talking about Punisher in, in a little bit because uh, that follows the same kind of logic. You try to narrow down on the number of variables as much as you can. And that's how you test. And the troubleshooting, the, the basic troubleshooting approach of dividing by halves very much applies, right? If, if something's not working, then you try to cut it in half and say, which part is not working? Like if I test the first half, does it still work? If not, then I'll move on to, to, to the second half. And in the, in the case of, say, troublesome or slow connections, you try closer to the server and see if it's still slow or if it's faster, that kind of thing, right? So to go back over that list there, um, the design choices that you make as a developer obviously have, I would say, the, the, the single biggest impact on performance. Um, wide tables, obviously the number of records that you keep, uh, whether you, how much you use unstored calculations, summary fields, how busy your layouts are, how your layouts are crafted as well. Um, and then I have a blog post about that too. It's, it's really old, but I still refer to it very often. Uh, it's a blog post where I talk about we, we all are good, and actually spoken about that at DEF CON too, we are very good developers, right? Uh, we, we learn, we try to keep ourselves up to date on all the features and we, we become better and better at this developing business. But are we good deployers? And very often what I see is that the, the, um, the thought that's been given to where the solution will be deployed to very often is an afterthought. Right? It's like, oh, um, I have the solution. I've been working on this as a developer for the last three, four months. I think it's ready. We'll deploy it. So um, what do we do now? Uh, does anybody have a spare Mac mini somewhere that we can throw this on? Um, that's sort of like the process that, that, it, that it goes to, right? Um, and I'm, I'm not really pointing fingers at anybody because it, it is a skill, right? Picking the right deployment, the right server is a skill, uh, that you have to be taught, you have to have experience uh, before you can get really good at, just like most most about most anything really. Uh, so, so there's that. But uh, it's certainly something that I that I want to and I have been talking about a lot. I want developers to become better deployers, right? To make better choices uh, where they deploy those. When I said that the design choices are the number one factor, I think that very that's very much true. But even if you design your solution extremely well, right? You make all the right choices when, when it comes to architecture and, and design, but you deploy it on a server that simply doesn't have the resources to cater to 50 concurrent users. Your solution and your design choices are basically having for naught, right? Because the server just can't handle it. Uh, the, the, the reverse there is, is, is 
true as well, right? So you can you can go out and buy a beast of a server. I don't know something like a gazillion cores and and oodles of RAM, but if your design choices were poor, then the server can't really take advantage of all that resources. So everything will be constrained. You'll have some some bottlenecks in your solution that are going to rear their ugly heads and and the server won't be able to to deploy all of that horsepower that is that it has and very often when when um, somebody brings a solution to us and say hey this thing it's been old we, we developed this 15 years ago we've been working on it for the last many years and and now it's it's become a bit of a dog can you have a look at that very often people look for that single thing like uh, where is the single dial that i have to tweak and turn and everything will become magically better and unfortunately there isn't one right it's working on performance means means looking at every single aspect um looking at the network looking at the server looking at at the design choices looking at all the logs that famica server gives us and making sure that you collect them in the first place uh, and then bringing that all together and this is a great segue into a new product that Saliant released, which I believe you were the the main architect on called Punisher. Can you tell us a little bit about Punisher? Sure. Punisher is um, is an open source thing that we have on GitHub, so anybody can go and download it. It's fully unlocked and, and open. Its main purpose was for us to be able to determine how different configurations of server and different versions of server as well, how they behave relative to each other. Um, uh, we've just listed some of these, the myriad of, of factors that can involve performance. So what we try to do with, with Punisher is to make some of those variables static so that they don't become a factor in, in the determination anymore. Uh, so Punisher has a, a suite of 16 scripts that always do the same thing. Uh, and what those scripts do is basically run the whole gamut of your typical operations. We have some scripts that do sorts, some scripts that create records, some scripts that edit records, um, import records, do some heavy computational stuff like um, a big while, like big iterations and loops and that kind of thing. So, so we try to make it representative for the things that we most typically find in a FileMaker solution, but make it so that it always runs the same thing. And then we can deploy Punisher to a server, let it run, so that we can collect information about how long it it takes to run each script, um, and we can we can also and and that's so like the other thing that we introduce with that we can introduce concurrency and obviously it all uses perform script on server because we are testing the server we're not testing the network between the server and the client we're not testing the client's machine we're testing specifically and only the behavior of Famica server so we use PSOS and. We can make Punisher do say one concurrent session, five, ten. How many? It's a, it's it's a free form. You you fill in whatever number you want. But typically, I do one, five, ten, and twenty concurrent sessions, and then you look at the numbers. Um, and for instance, you put it on a machine with uh, with two processors and eight gigs of RAM, and then you take the same Punisher and you put it in a machine with four cores or eight cores, and you see how those numbers change uh, across the different servers. And not just between the different servers. If you want, you can say, hey, um, I'll put 19.0 on my server. 
then I'll, I'll run the test. I'll uninstall 19.0. I'll put 19.1 on it, and I'll run the same test on the same server and then see whether 19.1 for server is faster than 19.0. So it, by abstracting a number of the variables, it makes it so that you can really do those comparisons between different versions of our maker server or different configurations of your, of your server machine itself. I was going to say, didn't Claris use Punisher in part of their testing? They did. They did. I sent them an early version uh, of it, um, and, and they they kind of liked it. So um, so they uh, they ran with it. Yeah, I think it's important to note that uh, people are going, well, what, what is the difference between two different 19.0 and 19.1? Well, and you can correct me on which version this came out, but they changed how sorting works, whether it works, I believe what it did is it worked totally locally before in a network scenario. And then now what happens is it actually uh, decides whether the server is busy or not and then might have the FileMaker server do the sorting because it might get the information to the user faster. And those are the kinds of differences because FileMaker team is constantly tweaking things to get the most out of their system. And you could design uh, a solution that would work better under 19.0 versus 19.1 just because of the differences in how that FileMaker server works. Absolutely, and especially in 19.1, and it's something that they tried with uh, with 18 first and then abandoned and now re-implemented in a different fashion with sort of the same results in 19.1. Uh, when you look at the numbers between 19.0 and 19.1, specifically for anything that involves a find, and when I say find, it's not just the user doing a manual find, obviously that, that is a find, but any kind of query that results in a in a found set. So it could be a go-to related or anything like that, um, which translates for FileMaker into doing finds on the data. The the change in behavior, the extra performance is dramatic, right? It's it's amazing, um, and it's one of those things where we wanted to map that out so that we can make wise decisions on on how to architect the solution and and what is going to be faster, because the the risk there obviously is that people will start to say, well, 19.1 is always faster than 19.0. And that may not be the case, right? Because we can build pretty much anything with the FileMaker platform. So if you happen to build something that doesn't involve doing many searches on data, but rather you have a system that does nothing but create and edit records, uh, but not so much finds, then the by going to 19.1, you may find that there isn't a, a big performance difference, right? We want to make sure that that people don't get unrealistic expectations about what is fast and what is not faster. So we really wanted to, to break it down into operations that people could recognize, like creating records or doing finds or doing sorts, uh, and then measuring what the impact is of those different versions of FileMaker Server for each one of those. Punisher will simulate multiple users. And I know we referred to as concurrency. Some people might it might pass them by and go, oh, I didn't know what that meant. You're, it's actually going to allow you to, to put 50 users and punish your system to see how it's going to react running all these scripts with 50 users. It's pretty cool. Yep, correct. Th that's exactly what it does, right? So you can you can pick an arbitrary number uh, of, of, uh, of users and it will simulate what it would take to do to, to run one particular script or, or a set of scripts when 50 users do it all at the same time. 
I've got a quick question about your analysis so far and what you've learned over the weeks and months of working with FileMaker Server. With the newest version of FileMaker Server available today, we all know that finds are more optimized, let's just say, uh, especially when you're talking about concurrency. You know, The more users, the more optimized in the results become, the more impact you see. Do you still see impact on a single instance of a single person doing a find? Is it still faster with the latest version of server, or is that about the same as the old? It's a really interesting question, and I was going to go there as well if nobody brought it up. Um, the answer is that there isn't a noticeable difference if there is only one operation going on or one user doing something. Um, and the reason for that is that the real benefit of these performance tuning uh, changes that the engineers have made to the product is that it allows the server to spread its load across multiple cores. So the server has to have the available resources, right? So if you, if you do this on a machine uh, with, say, two cores and you throw 20 users at it, you, you may not see a lot of impact either, right? Because the server has all of these find requests, but there's only two cores to work with. So it can't really spread it more than, than what it's already doing. So, so the performance impact will be less than if you do the same thing with 20 users doing this at the same time on a machine that has 12 cores. Because now the server has all these cores to work with and it will really spread that, that load around on the available um, number of processors. So if we tie that back to just one user doing it, there's really nothing for server to spread across multiple cores because it's a single type of operation. Now, Punisher's a, a great product, but it's not really a substitute for knowledge about what are the common things that can slow down FileMaker performance. And I'd like to go into that a little bit. I mean, you certainly should use Punisher, especially since it's free. Go out and use it and, and test it, and, and you may find some issues that you can solve that you didn't know about. But let's talk about some of the things that people should know about before when they're setting up a FileMaker server. Uh, you know, what are the, some of those common things that you would recommend to do or not to do with FileMaker server as far as anything on that server? Sure. Um, and I would say the first thing that you want to do is to make sure that you collect information about how your solution is behaving on that server. And you do that by t making sure that all the relevant logs are turned on. All right. So FileMaker server has has three main logs. Unfortunately, they're all turned off by default. So when you install a FileMaker server, you have to take the extra step of enabling them. Um, and the three are the stats log. Uh, and I'll talk about what's what's in them, uh, but the stats or statistics log, the topical stats log, and the client stats log. So those are going to be your go-to to figure out how your solution specifically your solution is behaving specifically on your FileMaker server, on your server machine. Um, any server deployment, and it really doesn't matter if it's FileMaker or your mail server or, or anything else, there's four potential bottlenecks to any deployment, right? It's going to be processing power, disk I.O., network throughput, and memory. So you want to have some good numbers about whether or not your solution on your server is hitting any of those bottlenecks. Right? Is there enough processing power? Um, maybe your disk um, subsystem is slowing you down. Right? Maybe your 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 hard drives are not being able to to cope with the demand. 
Maybe you don't have enough memory in, in your box. Or maybe your network is so darn slow that getting the data to and from the users is where your bottleneck is. And it's critical to know which ones, if any, of these you're hitting, right? Because if, if the network is your problem, you're not solving any issues by adding more memory to your machine or by adding more processors to your machine, right? So you need to know where your bottleneck is before you can target that bottleneck specifically, either by adding more resources to your server or by tracing whatever we see in those logs back to your design choices in your solution and then changing them there. So you want to describe a little bit about each one of those logs you mentioned, just what they basically uh, track? Sure. The um, the main log, and that's sort of like my first go-to. So if, if you think about sort of like a troubleshooting process, uh, if somebody brings a solution to me and says, well, hey, it's slow, uh, why? Right, which is a typical question. So the first thing I do is I log onto the server, and obviously I will have a quick look at the server and, and sort of like vet it for all best practices, right? So what is turned on? Is is like is there something else running? Uh, all, all the usual stuff. But if we look specifically at Famica Server, I'll make sure that the stats log is on. The stats log is something that by default, and you can change the interval, but by default, Famica Server will collect information every thirty seconds and will add a line to the stats log. And the stats log has something like, I forget the exact number, maybe 12, 12 metrics. Um, so it records things like uh, disk kilobytes, read and writes in those 30 seconds. Uh, network kilobytes, uh, read and writes in those 30 seconds. Um, cache hit percentage, elapsed time per call, wait time per call, IO time per call, um, remote calls and, proce and process number of open Famica files, number of connected clients. So all of these things are collected every 30 seconds. And that is sort of like your first go-to because it gives you a high-level overview of the current states performance-wise of your Famica server. Right? If uh, It's the classic scenario where, say, the users call you and say, I'm getting the beach ball uh, or, or the hourglass, like what's going on? You can go to that server, open that stats log, and see which of those metrics is is higher than you would expect it to be. And that's sort of where the knowledge about the solution and deployment comes in, because I can't really tell you, like, this number should be below X, right? Because the X depends on, on your circumstances. Uh, so you have, to, you have to know what the normal looks like on your solution, which is why I, I, I would really emphasize, as soon as you install a FileMaker server, turn the stats log on, because it'll start collecting data. And even if there's no performance issues, that's great because it'll give you your baseline. It'll give you something to compare against if users start complaining that things are slow, right? You can then say, well, I see this number and a number by itself isn't good or bad, right? It's just a number. But if by comparing that number to what its values are in different times of, of, uh, of the day or different days of the week, you can figure out whether that num number is now abnormal. Um, so the stats log is what I turn to first because that's the high level overview. It'll tell me by doing that comparison if one of those numbers is out of whack. Um, and if it's out of whack, then at least I have confirmation. Uh, and to give you a quick example, and this is really a topic, I really should write a white paper on, on that one. Um, it's it's one of these these things where we can talk about for hours. But say that you look at that stats log and you see the elapsed time per call is really high. What that typically shows is that your server is very, very busy on the processing side. 
Um, so it's not so busy on the disk side or pushing things to the network. It's really busy trying to compute things or getting things done processing-wise. So that gives you a piece of information that you can say, okay, now what, right? What is keeping my processors busy on that server? And for that, you can turn to the second log, the topical stats log. The topical stats log collects that same uh, number of metrics, but it, it does it um, broken down by operation that the server is actually executing, if that makes sense. So every 30 seconds, because that's the default collection interval for all the logs on FileMaker server, and you can change that, um, it'll collect information about the 25 most expensive operations that FileMaker server had to do during those 30 seconds. So that'll give you information about what operation it was. And it could be, um, operations would be, for instance, uh, doing a, a query, right? It'll say query on this field for, from that table. Uh, or it could be something like um, comparing modification counts, which is a fairly common occurrence if if somebody opens a file on a table view with a million and a half records, there's a lot of communication between server and client to send the client updated information for the client's cache. And part of that is comparing modification counts between what the client may already have in cache and what the server has data-wise. So that's one of the typical ones that you have there. But that client stats log gives you information about what types of operations uh, are, or, or that server thought were expensive costly right uh, so that that's what that means Wim in in years past um, people like clay would get on and say or John Thatcher um, would say uh, top call logs is, is a great thing that you may or may not want to have on full-time only because in and of itself it can deter performance have you seen in the later versions of server that that minor performance hit is negligible at this point to have the top call stats log running full-time um, it, it's a good point because uh, even now, I believe in the admin console, when you turn it on, you'll get a, a bit of a warning uh, to say, hey, this this uh, this can affect performance. The thing is with performance, the act of performing or, or monitoring data always skews the numbers, right? That That's just what it is because the act of monitoring will consume its own share of resources. Sure. So if we think about the top call stats log, in essence, what it does besides keeping track of what the numbers for those metrics are, it'll write 25 lines to a text file every 30 seconds. Um, it's one of those things, and I've said that from the beginning, if your server cannot handle that, then you really have a problem somewhere, right? Then it, it's right. really not the right server for, for, for the task. Um, so I don't think we should be blind for the fact that it, it does add a little bit of processing tasks to the server, but it wouldn't be the thing that worries me. Yeah, it pales in comparison to the fixes it could provide. So does that mean you would recommend in most cases just having top call on all the time then? In fact, uh, in the latest versions of server, it's my understanding that once you turn the top call log on, it remains on even after a server restart, which was not the old behavior. It, it does, absolutely. And you're right to bring that up, uh, Mark. And when you turn it on, it stays on. The, the, the regular stats log, when you turn it on, it stays on. You don't have to worry about that used to be the top call stats log and the client stats log, when you turn them on, it would turn themselves off at the next FileMaker server restart. Uh, and and, it, and they, they did that to protect yourself from incurring that whatever the, the performance penalty is of having the log on. But, but now in 
and the current versions, they stay on. Yes, good, good point. And I think that's, uh, especially in light of today's talk, I think we'll be putting on top call logs, not just when we need them, but full time. Yep. The The issue with the top call stats log is, um, and especially in busy environments, and, and that's sort of like the, uh, the dilemma, because typically you will have performance issues in busy environments. Um, the key to the top call stats log is that it only collects information about the 25 most expensive operations in, in that whatever the, the logging interval is, the 30 seconds, right? So if you have 50 users hammering away at the solution, doing fines, creating records, uh, re running subsummary reports, the list of those 25 most expensive operations is really good information to have, but it gives you only a limited scattershot snapshot of the of the operations that the that the users are doing right there's there's a very real knowledge gap between the operations we see in the top call stats log and the things that we know as a developer the things we know as developer is um, the user goes to that layout and because there's a portal with some filtering on there and maybe some relationships that go four levels deep that is that is what we would call an operation right the user goes to that layout in the communication between the client and the server, that gets broken down in, into maybe a hundred operations, right? So, in that top call stats log, you will never, unfortunately, find the information of user X goes to that layout, right? The the top call stats log is broken down into a level of granularity that makes it hard to to make that bridge to what we know, like the user runs a script or the user does a find on this field. Um, so, so there's a really really very real gap there um, that is sometimes difficult to bridge and the best way to start bridging that is to and the other thing is in topical stats you, you log it'll say query on um, fields 131 of table 254 which are the internal ids of the tables and the fields right so it doesn't even say in table orders and the fields uh, customer name right so so you, you need something like an XML DDR that you then import into your favorites analysis tool, base elements, FM perception, Inspector Pro, to to uh, to marry that top call stats log to your actual solution. So you can see, hey, I constantly see that queries on this particular field of that particular table always show up as an expensive operation. Maybe I need to look at where that field is being used and change it. Maybe it is an unstored calculation that I can change to a stored calculation and uh, and avoid the penalty of searching on it. Right. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is that FileMaker isn't going to and probably can't tell you exactly where the issue is. You'd like it to. You'd like to say, hey, go fix that script right here. That's what's causing the problem. Exactly. It, it just can't do that. So you have to be a detective to some degree. See what your users are doing. Look at the, the logs put things together uh, and figure it out and connect the dots yourself to some degree. You Exactly. You have to. And so there's some actual sleuthing you have to do and that can consume a fair number of hours, If especially if you're not used to, like if it's not your solution and you're just being asked to troubleshoot it. Um, you obviously cannot rely on on knowing the solution and or knowing the parts of the solution that are used the most by users. So when you go in blind, it can take a fair number of, of hours to um, to uh, come up with a a list of things that can be checked by either you or or the developer of the solution. Um, there's actually 
a bit of an, a hidden feature in 19.1 that can help with that. Um, one of the things that you can do with 19.1, both on the server and on the client, is you can set a, a text file and, and you can include what, what the engineer calls debug flags in that text file. One of them is to make a client log every single call that they make to the server. Um, and I think that's going to be the next big jump in our troubleshooting efforts. Uh, uh, because here's a scenario, right? So you know that something is, is, uh, is slow. Uh, or at least you, well, say that you know, right? Because you've looked at the topical stats log, you know that certain things always show up, but it's kind of hard for you to figure out where does that come from, right? Is it from the user going to a layout? Is it from running a script? Uh, so what is causing that particular operation uh, to to uh, to be executed and because we see it's slow? By setting that debug flag on a client, you can now do one of these operations. Like you can say, I'm going to go to that layout. Right and stop right there, not do any more. Then you can see in that, so like the debug log that's being held at the client now, you see all the operations that this act of going to this layout with this portal is broken down to, right? So it'll help bridge that, that gap like we haven't been able to in the past. Now you say it's kind of hidden. How does somebody find out more information if they want to try to implement this? Is it is it published somewhere or? I don't think there's, I haven't seen any references in official help um, on the Claris side, but we do have some articles on our Solion blog that, that talk about it. Uh, and there may be some other ones in the community. Um, I haven't really looked for them, um, but I do expect, like I said, we can go to the Solion website and find them. I'll include the link after uh, in the session notes for this one. Um, so you basically have to Google it and, and see what the community has, uh, has unearthed there. So what you've been talking about uh, are ways to solve a problem essentially after it's, I mean, there's, you've talked a little bit about turn them on so you have a baseline, but a lot of the logs is about solving a problem once it starts. I'd like to talk a little bit about optimizing a server. Um, things you should know about that Punisher's not really going to, you know, you know, can solve certainly and, and, top calls can solve but let's let's talk about getting rid of those things that are identified as almost always causing problems like for instance i just uh, saw somebody on the forums uh, i think it was 2 days ago and they they were they had their their filemaker file in the cloud but not not the claris cloud it was the apple cloud and he wanted to and so first thing was the problem was he hadn't dedicated a server to it. He was only user, so he didn't see a reason why, but he didn't have it on his local hard drive. That was a big problem. You should always have your file on the local hard drive because FileMaker is a hard disk-based system. And if it has to go out to a server and then come back uh, to give the information, that's going to that's gonna really put some latency on there. But then they're asking, how do I get multiple people to access it? Well, you have to put it up on a server, a dedicated server. And a lot of people don't do that, especially people are starting off with basic systems. You know, maybe they're a small company and they go, well, let's just put it on, on this, you know, this cloud software, or put it on a remote hard drive or something like that. But what other things really can put a bottleneck uh, and that you should really just always, whenever you're setting up a server, you should do this kind of stuff. It really starts w with uh, what you said, um, and I wholeheartedly agree with that, is, is you have to use FileMaker Server, right? It's, it's your best 
guaranteed to have the most stable, most secure, most performant deployment of your Famica solutions. So, so you pick a server, uh, and you and, and you pick your version of Famica server that you want, right? So if you don't want to bother with anything that has to do with deploying and, and servers, you can go with the Famica cloud. You, you just have to make sure that you understand the feature differences between any of the on-premise versions and the Famica cloud version. Uh, but say that you want to do the um, on-premise or self-host in the cloud. Um, these days, you have your Windows, Mac OS, and Linux versions to pick from. So you can pick your operating system, the one that you feel the most comfortable uh, supporting. I think that is a big factor in making it so that you know what you're doing when you get to the server, right? You have to, be, you have to feel comfortable uh, and understand the tools that the operating system uh, gives you so that you can, uh, you can troubleshoot and you can configure correctly. We, we mentioned already in, in sort of like performance troubleshooting, uh, any server deployment has those four big categories of bottlenecks, potential bottlenecks, right? So memory, processing power, the hard drives, and the network. Of those four, the ones that are typically going to cause some issues on, on any FileMaker solution is processing power and disk I.O., right? So disk input outputs or the speed by which your disks can operate is a huge factor together with uh, with processing and processing breaks down into the number of cores available and the clock speed of your cores. Um, so the combination of those two uh, plus your disk IO. So knowing that anything you do on the server that is not directly related to FileMaker that would impact either your processing or your disk IO is going to adversely impact your, your performance on your server, right? So um, a good example of something that is very disk intensive is, is like a mail server. Or, or a file server for that matter, right? Um, if you have all these users saving their Word documents and Excel files on the same hard drive as, as the one that Famica server is trying to, to serve its Famica client users from, that's not gonna go over very well, right? So that's going to uh, make it so that Famica server and the other processes are gonna fight over those combined resources. Same with, uh, with processing. If you have anything on your Famica server, that is going to consume a lot of your processing power, uh, you'll, you're going to feel it and, and your Famica users are going to feel it. Um, so that's one of the main reasons to, to dedicate your, your server to Famica server. The other aspect of that is, is one for disaster recovery and business continuity, right? If, as soon as you, and I know it's very tempting and you gave the example there, John Mark of say somebody who's just beginning and they have this server that is a, their file server. So why wouldn't they put FileMaker server on there? Um, it's very tempting to do so. Um, but now you have two potentially business critical operations going running off the same server. If that server goes down, you don't have your file shares and you don't have your FileMaker solution, right? So that will be another reason that you don't want to combine two roles onto one server and, and really dedicate your machine to FileMaker server. Um, then there's the other thing to uh, to keep in mind, the sort of like the nature of the FileMaker platform, because FileMaker server and the way that it communicates with its clients, it's it's a it's as close to a true client server thing uh, as you can get, right? FileMaker server is continuously talking to its connected clients. It's actually one of the the biggest features of the FileMaker platform. Um, the instant propagation of both data and schema is a great thing, right? As a developer, I can go to layout mode, put a new button on the layouts, 
get out of, of layout mode and voila, every user that is that has the solution open will now see that button automatically without me having to compile and redistribute the solution. So it, it happens automatically. So that's the instant propagation of schema. The same thing happens with data. If I commit a record, I've just created a new record or updated a new one, anybody else that is using that, that file can now instantly see that update. That's the instant propagation of, of data. As FileMaker developers, we don't have to write a single line of code to make that happen. It's built into the platform. The penalty for that is that, well, that's not a penalty. The consequence of that is that server and clients are always talking. Even if the user, the client is not really doing anything, you may be just looking at the screen, but your FileMaker Pro clients or Go client or WebDirect clients is talking to the server in the back end. Um, and of course, the server is keeping its own cache, the database cache, up to date. So it's reading and writing from, from the file on the hard drive um, pretty much all the time. Um, so, so you have all these operations going on in the background that may be not very transparent. So they just happen automatically. Um, so being aware of those and understanding that they are so, right? So that FileMaker server is always reading and writing from the from the file on the hard drive and is always talking across the network to its clients is sort of critical in making sure that you do nothing to, that upsets that. Uh, classic examples that will upset that is say bad, uh, bad networking uh, or putting your FileMaker server on a Wi-Fi network instead of a wired network, right? So Wi-Fi is or tends to be more fragile it tends to run at at a fraction of the speed of a wired connection. Um, the doing things on your network like a voice over IP or, or video over IP, right, and making that run on the same segments as your the client traffic to and from FileMaker Server, all these things are going to be detrimental to to the performance uh, and especially to the to the experience that your FileMaker clients will have with your solution. Wim, I've got a question. So, John, let me just throw this in. Uh, Wim, I've got a question for you. You mentioned the term processing power. And I was looking at the new Apple um, MacBook Airs and the Mac Mini using the M1 chip. Is there Has that reached a point where FileMaker can't actually benefit from using a chip as fast as that? Or is is it still worth upgrading to get that extra performance in terms of processing power and performance? FileMaker Server can take advantage of any and all processing power that you give at it. Um, and obviously with 19... No, I, I actually meant, I was talking about the uh, individual client machines rather than the FileMaker Server. Sure. Uh, on the client side, um, the client will take advantage of the pure speed of a, uh, of a processor. Uh, n not so much the, the number of cores, for instance, right? But having a higher clock speed on your, on your processors obviously makes that your machine can get through any given task faster than, say, another machine that has a slower clock speed. So, so, so there too, you'd, you'd, you'd feel the benefit of having um, higher speeds, absolutely. Great, thank you. Now, I think one of the most common types of mistakes people make is what you mentioned before, Wim, is is having file sharing on a machine that really should be dedicated to FileMaker Server. Because file sharing, if your people are bringing files across the network and using the processing power, that's really can detriment 
your FileMaker server performs quite a bit. And so as far as one of the main things that we always, when I worked in tech support, we always got calls about, we'd always say, hey, you got to turn that file sharing on. In fact, it's even been suspect in a lot of cases where uh, servers crash because, uh, you know, there's there's a conflict there. And and so I would probably mention that as the, probably the one you need to make sure that you go on that machine and you don't have file sharing. You don't need file sharing to make FileMaker's networking work. It has nothing to do with it. They're two separate things. Dedicate and make your FileMaker server a lean, mean serving machine. I sound like George Foreman now, but <laughs> I, I want to make my point. So uh, any other kind of software that people typically have on a server? Because I know you analyze a lot of these. Any typical kind of software that people put on there and they didn't know it would be a problem? One of the more common ones, and it fits into um, into a description that you just gave there, um, is when people try to, and for good reason, with, with really good intentions, they try to set their server up so that it will automatically back up to the cloud, right? Um, and so they look at it, and if you're, say, a, a somewhat typical FileMaker developer, you, you tend to think of it as, a, as an individual or as a user, not so much as a server deployer. So they think, uh, you know what, Dropbox or iCloud, right? So that, that, that seems like a really nice way because it'll sync automatically up to the cloud and not have to worry about it. And it means I have a backup that now goes uh, somewhere away from my machine, so I'll, I'll be safe. We all know that it's good to have backups away from the machine and off-premise and, and all of that stuff. The um, the thing, for instance, with uh, with Dropbox is that it isn't really a server product, right? It's a user space product. So installing it and configuring it so that it runs as a background process, that's kind of iffy. It, it's not really meant for that. Um, and then making making sure that FileMaker server backs up to one of those folders is not ideal either. So those are the kinds of things where where people can for the best of intentions can make bad mistakes that instead of making their deployment better in the sense that now you have automated backups to the cloud, you're actually introducing vulnerabilities into your deployment that can make your deployment less stable um, and more prone to crashes. Any recommendations on how to do that properly? Are there some guidelines to follow? Because obviously I think people do do that um, but you should certainly let FileMaker server do the backups for you and then back up the backups. Is there any good way to do that that you found? One of the easiest ways to do that these days is to use um, something like um, AWS S3, uh, which is um, Amazon AWS's uh, file storage service. Um, there's other ones from Google and from, uh, from Microsoft Azure that, that do the same thing. And they all work the same way in the sense that you can install, say, the command line version of that on your server. And installing that doesn't really upset your server. It's just a, a tiny little thing that only gets used when, when you call on it. And you can write a batch file, a very simple batch file. And I'm, I'm sure probably people are going, rolling their eyes already, like batch files, I don't know batch files, don't, don't want to bother with batch files. But it's one of these things where it's actually so simple that once you do it once you go like i should have done this way sooner right it's it's really not that hard there's almost no learning curve to it but you can write a simple two-line batch file that will go find the most recent backup that your filemaker server has just done because i agree with you john mark you let filemaker server do its backup to its normal place and then you work with the operating system or the other tools like aws s3 to then grab that and push it up to the cloud 
Um, so probably in the middle of the night, right? Yeah, exactly. Where, where there's no users, you don't, because obviously when you read from the hard drive and, and you communicate with the network, you're now going to consume two of those four potential bottleneck resources, right? Network and, and disk IO that your server would potentially or perhaps feel, depending on how many resources, how much of those resources are available. So yeah, you want to do that uh, when there is the least chance of impact on your users. And I got to imagine there's probably tons and tons of resources on the internet that show you how to write a simple batch file like that, even maybe particularly with AWS. Absolutely. There's some really good examples already that, that are there. And it's one of these things that uh, if you know that it exists uh, or you've seen it in action, you heard about it, you're not quite sure how to do it. Just go onto one of the forums, right? Ask the question. People are going to help you. The community itself is just has always been wonderful for helping others and sharing information. I think it's what it makes it unique among all the different platforms. I don't know of any other um, environment that has such a helpful community. Yeah, I, I don't think there is any that's quite as good. There's definitely help out there on different platforms, but FileMaker seems to, to be one of the best uh, where you can get that information. I'm curious to continue on this performance thing and talk a little bit about Linux because uh, FileMaker Incorporated back in the FileMaker 6 days, and I might actually, it was probably Claris 1.0 at that point, uh, did have a Linux version of FileMaker Server, and then they finally brought it back. And I'm curious on your thoughts on why it's here. Is it performance? Is it reliability? Did the, did the developers out there say, we need this? Why do you think they went, uh, you probably know exactly why, why File, uh, Claris uh, decided to bring Linux back? Yeah, back in the FileMaker Server 5.5 days, right, is when we had the Linux version. And uh, and I absolutely loved it then. And I, I love the one that we have right now. Um, they they released it because they already had it, right? Their FileMaker Cloud runs entirely on the Linux version of FileMaker Server. Um, so it was pretty much a no-brainer for them to release it. It's one of these things that a lot of us developers have asked for, a lot of IT, a lot of IT departments have asked for it too, right? Where um, any company of any size that that is starting to manage multiple servers, or I don't know, a few to a, a few dozen servers, having or having the ability to run your servers on the Linux platform is great, right? It lowers costs significantly instead of having to go out and get a a macOS set of hardware really to run macOS, or to um, have to go and purchase a, a Windows server license to, to run FileMaker Server under, it's not impossible. And, and every, we've, we've been doing it for years, but the ability to run it on Linux makes it so much easier, right? We get instant buy-in from IT departments. Uh, it reduces the cost of your deployment. So it's, it's a great thing all around to have. Um, so they had it. They decided to release it. It's a great thing. I don't know anything about Linux, but when... What is the difference between Linux, other than it's an open source platform, and that's all I really know about it? What's the benefits? Um, that, that would warrant um, a few hours of discussion by itself, but it's um, the main reason. Well, Linux, in essence, is a, it's an open source operating system, and it has multiple distributions, right? So there's not a single Linux. It's a, There's a Linux kernel that's being used by many different versions of the Linux operating system. The one that uh, Claris decided to use for FileMaker Server is uh, CentOS. 
it, it, the abbreviation stands for uh, Community Enterprise Operating System. So that's what CentOS stands for. Um, and it's a one-to-one -one compatibility uh, with an operating system that is not open source, which is uh, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, so if you look at the myriad of Linux operating systems that we have out there, right, we have Ubuntu, uh, MintOS, uh, there, there's any number of them out there. Um, Claris chose CentOS because as an operating system, it's one that is geared towards stability. Uh, so it's a very conservative uh, approach to operating systems. Um, Linux operating systems come in different flavors from minimal to fully fledged out with desktop and, and whatnot. Um, but the operating system itself, the minimal ones are really geared for server operations, right? Just like Windows Server is different than Windows Desktop because it's geared and tuned for, for background operations and, and all of these things. So, so Linux is very lightweight. Uh, compared to operating systems, to, to some other operating systems, because it doesn't carry all that load of desktops and, and other things that, that you don't really need in a server operating system. So it's uh, it tends to be stable. It tends to be minimal, so a very small footprint. And of course, it's open source, so it doesn't have to cost you anything. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, and the only disadvantage really to, to Linux is the fact that primarily it's installed using command line. It's administered using command line. Uh, well, any, as much as today's server is. Um, and I think our, our early experience with it um, is that I think there's a, a – for someone who knows Linux, installing Linux server will be another day in the life. For someone who's never played with Linux, I think installing FileMaker server is going to add additional challenges and things that they need to learn. Uh, not to say that that's not a good thing that we have it, but – it is an interesting paradigm, and I'll go back to what Wim said earlier. Uh, installing on the OS that you know is probably better than installing on an OS that might be slightly better performance-wise, which Linux, in some cases, have been proven already to be. So the OS you know is always the best one, because then you're going to have the most likely success of deployment and maintenance and love for that server. Um, if you're putting... Again, a warning is, okay, you might know that Linux is a touch more performant than, let's say, Mac OS or Windows. But if you're the person having to install it and configure it and maintain it, then by all means, use the OS that you feel most comfortable with. Um, because if you don't enjoy anything about Linux and you're going to be frustrated every time you have to do something with it, um, or even updating the operating system for Linux is a whole other thing. Uh, that, that would be my only... Uh, addition to what what has been said here as far as linux goes but we're loving the fact that that it's there and available to us for the same reasons that wim was talking about i'll i'll concur i think it's critical that you pick an operating system that you're familiar with or that you're willing to become familiar with right because the worst thing that will happen is that if you have to get into that operating system in anger because something is really wrong with your deployment you don't want to have to have the extra stress of not knowing where to turn and what to do, right? So that is absolutely critical. The um, the thing about the command line um, is a point that I've been trying to make on, on the community and, and white papers and blog posts uh, since now that we have how make a server for Linux is the learning curve, it, it's real, right? So I'm not going to kid anybody, it, it's real, but it isn't that steep. Um, it's easier than most people think it is. Um, and obviously having the right tools, 
Um, we have some blog posts and there's something coming out um, in the near future that has a lot more details there too, where having the right tool set uh, can make 90% difference in, in how how you feel, how comfortable you feel in, in, in poking around. Uh, for instance, to give a, a very quick example, I have a, um, a tool that allows me to spin up multiple sessions to different servers, but it has a great set of snippets, right? I don't have to remember a lot of these Linux commands. I can just recall them and, and double click on them and get them executed, which really helps, right? Because I can get productive very quickly, uh, even if I haven't touched a, a Linux machine in, in weeks, because typically that's how it goes, right? You, you know something uh, and you know it really well for a couple of days and then Two months go by and you you have to go back to linux machine and go like how did that go again i i, I forgot right because there's nothing to see it's something you have to memorize exactly or, so or just know yeah yep so having a good snippet tool makes it makes a huge difference yes but Wim, let's be perfectly honest i mean you're a belgian swiss army knife you know all these technologies and it's second nature to you and to people like me it's like oh my god i don't want to know about this stuff it terrifies me it, that that is true, uh, but the thing is, I started out exactly like you, right? Um, and it's sort of like the, the backstory of of that. And maybe I can tell it. It's, it's actually a nice story. When uh, when I got my first real big clients, and we're talking mid nineties, um, I was your farmaker, typical farmaker developer, right? I, I'd spend months building a solution. I thought it was great. Of course, it was great. Uh, it was me. Oh, come on, um, the. Uh, <laughs> Um, and this was for a company that was growing very quickly. Um, and, um, this was Famicom three. I, I was trying to, and at the time you don't have to make that decision right now, but at the time you had to actually make a decision when you deployed your Famicom server, you had to choose between the IPX and the TCP IP network protocol. Um, and IPX was, uh, IPX was the thing back then. And TCP, TCP IP was this new thing. Like, uh, why would I bother? Like IPX is proven has been the standard for since forever. Um, and I had to install my first FileMaker server on an NT4 machine. Um, didn't know anything about it. Was scared shitless about it. I was sweating bullets. Um, but I said, look, I'll install this thing, put FileMaker server on it, uh, choose IPX. Um, and he, so here I was, day one. I was immensely proud of my solution. The first users come in, they fire up their machine, open the FileMaker solution, and it literally takes minutes for the first screen to render, right? So everybody turns around and looks at me and says, like, this is what you've been working on for three months? Like, really? This is all that we're getting for all the money that we paid you? Um, and I'm going like, this is bad. This is bad. And actually, and I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And because I came from, uh, and I, um, my background in development was VBA and VB6 and Access. Um, of course, I blame FileMaker for, for all this crappiness. Um, I actually had to revert to writing a small VB app that I installed on every single workstation that would at six o'clock in the morning open FileMaker and open the solution so that by the time users came in, their solution was had already gone through that first few minutes of of, uh, of loading. So basically buying me time to, uh, to figure out how to solve this issue. Uh, and I, eventually I solved it. It was a combination of networking and, and server configurations and all of that stuff. But it, it taught me one very valuable lesson, um, and that's why I'm so passionate about server deployments, is um, it doesn't really matter how good a developer I am. If I deploy my solutions badly, my users don't get the value that they pay for. 
right? It doesn't matter how well I, I, I make my, my fields and my calculations and, and how, how, how sparse I make my scripts and how performant I make those. If it's deployed in a crappy fashion, it's bad. End of story. Yeah, that was a great story. I, I really, I really enjoyed that story a lot. I'm glad you brought it up. Don't, don't hesitate to tell us any, any more stories like that. But isn't it true that so often somebody gets a job to develop a FileMaker solution and they don't know what they're doing and they don't get blamed so much as FileMaker does? And uh, I think that's been a problem for decades and probably still is. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't disagree with that. A lot of times people like to point the finger and and they often point it at FileMaker or Claris at this point rather than the developer. That's there's a lot of that going on out there where people are trying to become FileMaker developers but they don't really know what they're doing and they're programming bad solutions and making the FileMaker solution look bad. Um, you know, FileMaker app look bad and it's 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 really uh a tragedy because uh, you know it, it it happens I think a lot because FileMaker is so easy to get started on you know but it's a lot of work to get that level of depth of knowledge to know how to deploy a serious solution like you know like the ones that that Wim is is working with at Saliant on a on a daily basis. Okay, so Wim, my next question is about WebDirect. I've always and we talked about this a little bit in the in the previous podcast. But WebDirect has always been one of those resource hogs, and you had to throw a lot, and there was limitations on how many WebDirect users you could have simultaneously uh, connecting to a solution. And how is, I'm just curious, how has WebDirect changed as far as deployment on FileMaker server? Has it gotten better? Um, do you still need to throw a lot of hardware? Do you have to watch out about it? How's the performance? You know, I'm just looking for your expertise because you probably see a lot of these systems. Uh, it's a really good question, and it's a um, it's a it's a topic that has a few um, things running off of it too. And um, it, th I think, one of the things that it's obvious, but people tend to somewhat overlook it sometimes, is that when you deploy your solution through WebDirect, or you have a subset of your or your users running it through WebDirect. Um, and especially if you just have the one server, right? Um, obviously, we can deploy a worker machine specifically for WebDirect, right? So you can have up to 100 WebDirect users really using a secondary machine so that your FileMaker server machine becomes or remains the database server. Your WebDirect server, your secondary server becomes the, well, the WebDirect server. Uh, let's call it that. We talked a little bit, I'm taking one half step back to come back in a minute, but we talked about perform script on server earlier in the conversation. And, it, and that to me falls in the same category of making good decisions about your deployments, right? Um, it's, it's a trap that I see a lot of developers fall into, and it applies equally to perform script on server and web direct where they go like, you know what, my solution, especially when I deploy it on the WAN, it's kind of sluggish, it's low. So I'll just ask the server to do more, right? I'll do more on PSOS or I'll, I'll put WebDirect in play uh, to, to overcome that. And that's fine. Uh, but as developers, when we develop these things on our development server or standalone, it's very, very easy to fall in that trap of, hey, it is much faster when I do it that way. But then you turn around and, and you deploy that and there, all of a sudden you have 20, 30, 50 users doing that at the same time. Now, you're asking that server to do a lot, right? Your server now, in addition to be, be being the database server, now is an application server as well. Now, now you're, 
your server is running client sessions, right? So that's that's the way that we need to look at these. You have your server doing its database backend stuff. Now it's doing client session stuff. And, and to some extent that's obvious, but I do want to call it out. So when you do WebDirect, your, your server has to be capable of doing that, right? Uh, this is not one of these where you can just throw it at your server and expect that it'll, it'll just work. You, you really have to dimension and pick your server and its specs so that it is capable of handling that. Um, when was WebDirect introduced? Uh, 13, something like that. Um, it certainly has gotten better over time, more performance, and there's still better things to come. Can't really talk about those, but if you're in ETS, you'll know. Um, there's some really good stuff there, and it has become gradually better. Um, one of the big decision points there clearly is how many users you throw at it, and what is the nature of those users' interaction with your solution. Um, are they just filling in a form and submitting it? Uh, are they just looking at, at some data, uh, maybe a contact record, so that they can call that person and, and take some notes? Or will they be running heavy-duty, sub-summary, reporting kind of style things, right? So those are all considerations you have to make to begin deciding whether WebDirect is, is, um, is a good choice for, for, de for deploying your solution in, in that fashion. Uh, but it certainly has gotten better over time. So I, I, think, I think what you're saying is, though, is that if you do do WebDirect, you need to consider that it's, you're going to need better hardware, uh, you know, all around in general and it all depends again on you know how your solutions designed what they're doing um, but but all that stuff that normally gets done on the client with a filemaker client when you're doing it through a web browser and web direct all of a sudden all that work that rendering is going on and all that work goes on on the server because the web browser can't do it it's impossible for it to do it so I guess what you're saying is that it, it's gotten better, but your 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 caveat would say, hey, you know, if you're going to be doing WebDirect, make sure you have some good hardware, some decent hardware, some good RAM, and things like that. Exactly. And that's where we can tie it into some of the things we talked about, is if you have that baseline of performance data and metrics on your Famica server, and you're considering whether you can deploy WebDirect, if you have that baseline, of that, those of those logs, you can sort of extrapolate from there to see: Does my server have spare capacity um, to to even start going down that route, or do I have to get a whole new server, or do I need to consider a secondary WebDirect uh, worker machine uh, for all of these things? So, so it goes back to to knowing how your solution and your server is behaving and what the, what those numbers look like. So I'm a little confused here, Wim, and I apologize if this is a stupid question, but are you saying that you would have a separate server for the WebDirect side of it? Uh, basically, when you install Famica Server, you can uh, install it or deploy it as a single server or as a two-machine deployment. Um, when you pick the two-machine deployment, the worker machine, as it's called, is, is really only meant for WebDirect use. Um, but, but what it allows you to do is to offload all of the client sessions, the WebDirect sessions, to that second server. Um, and I believe the recommendation is to not exceed 100 concurrent users on the, on, on the worker machine. So the other question I had before we get off server is we've been told ad infinitum forever that um, if you're going to run FileMaker Server, you should have it on a dedicated box just running FileMaker Server. Is that strictly true? 
Is it still true or is it now changing? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, that falls in the category of best practices, right? Um, and best practices are born out of a lot of pain from people who have gone this road before, been bitten by it, and sort of like summarized their experiences into a best practice. Um, so I, I think that that is critical in understanding what a best practice is. It's not somebody from in an ivory tower saying, you must do this or you must do that, and, and, and you having to blindingly follow that. It's one of these things where um, you can go out and try it yourself and then potentially have to learn the same lessons that somebody else already has learned. Or you can say, you know what, I'll trust that a best practice became a best practice for a good reason, so I'll stick to the best practices. And like with any best practices, they're, they're basically rules of thumb, right? They're, they're, they're abstractions a little bit of, of a of very complex and, 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 and very, very uh, hard-fought lessons um, that, that people had to, had to go through. So the best practice to dedicate a server or uh, to dedicate a server to FileMaker Server, right? So put FileMaker Server on a dedicated box with nothing else running on it is clearly a very important best practice. Um, and it comes from lessons learned in two big categories. One is pure performance, right? Clearly, because you have those four potential bottlenecks, you don't want anything consuming resources in those four potential bottlenecks because if FileMaker Server needs those resources and they're not available, then obviously your performance, your solution, and your user's experience of your solution will suffer. Of course, you can say you can counter that by saying, well, I'll just get a very beefy server, right? That solves all my performance issues. And that, that may be a very valid reason uh, or solution to, to that. Um, the second category of lessons learned that, that drove that best practice um, is one of, of, I mentioned it before, is disaster recovery and business continuity. Um, if, if your FileMaker server and the solution that runs on that is critical to your solution, and the other thing that runs on that solution is, is also, or, or maybe not even that critical, but say that you're running a file server on your FileMaker server, or a mail server for the matter. Let's call it a mail server, right? A mail server, I would say, is fairly critical these days, right? So you want to make sure that your emails come in. Um, if that server dies, now you're out of email and you're out of your FileMaker solution, right? That, that would make it a very costly downtime for your business. So you probably don't want to do that. Uh, the other thing is, say that you run something that isn't very used very often. Say you're accounting software. Uh, on your FileMaker server. And, and there's only one person, your accountant in the in the business that uses it. So it's it's not that bad. But say that you have to install patches or security fixes or anything that the others that the other application does that may cause downtime on that server. Now you have to take your FileMaker solution offline to to fix something that is not even remotely related to your FileMaker solution. Right. So that is going to cause more downtime that you would, than you typically would have if you dedicated a machine to FileMaker Server. Um, so those are the two big categories of reasons why the best practice came to be what it is. And like with any best practice, once you understand what it's there for, you can choose not to do it, right? So nobody's going to make you uh, follow those best practices. I think the only thing we can ask for is that understand the reasoning why uh, and make a considerate decision as to understanding the consequences of not doing it. Well, of course, the other thing is that 
I mean, cost of hardware these days. I mean, the Mac, the new Mac Minis with the M1 chip are incredibly fast, and they're very inexpensive. So it isn't, it isn't big money to have an extra machine for FileMaker server, to serve FileMaker or any other application you might need to keep separate from the others. Is it? It really isn't. If you look at the price of a um, good entry-level FileMaker server machine, whether it's Linux, Mac OS, or Windows. The cost of that is going to be negligible to any any downtime of even just a few hours, right? So I don't really see the cost as being a big issue. It's funny the uh, the question that exact question was asked, or a similar question was asked at the last uh, webinar that Claris did with the under the hood session. And Clay says, now I want you guys to know and remember that the M1 chips that you're seeing introduced in the Mac Minis and the laptops are really consumer grade chips. They really haven't yet released the chips that are bigger and badder for, let's say, the um, the Mac servers slash the, the Mac Pro machines or even an iMac. So he just wanted to remind everyone that, you know, as great as these M1 chips are, they're still considered consumer grade level performance. Uh, so I, I emphasize the word entry level server when we're talking about the new Mac minis and an M1, maybe for a small installation, small company. That might work fine, but not necessarily what you want for some large deployment. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, and I picked up on the same on that same thing. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and it's an important thing to keep in mind when you have a server, and that server needs to run twenty four seven. Again, I think it comes down to asking the, the the two big questions: How much data are you willing to lose, and how much downtime are you willing to stand? Right. The answer to those two questions will decide how much money to sink into your deployments. But, but those are critical questions to ask. Yeah, those consumer-level machines have a mean time to failure, which is much lower than a server-grade machine. And typically what I suggest people do if they're a small company is they have two hard drives, one for the live databases and one for the backups. And that way, at least you get some fault tolerance there. You get you need to make sure that that if one goes down, you still have the other one. It's not a major d disaster. You just have to go out and get another hard drive and you're down for a day or something like that. But people need to realize they don't put really, really good hard drives inside those those, you know, those entry level machines. They they are tended tend to be um you know, have a, a failure rate uh, of somewhere between three and five years. It's it's just not that long. And with the server, you want something much big, much longer, because then you then you don't have to worry about it as much. I mean, things still happen, but you know, you, you make sure you buy something that's going to be reliable. So, Wim, I want to throw want to go on to Golf Server. I think we've probably covered that and talk to you about what your feelings are and thoughts on the two-way JavaScript integration that's been introduced in the latest version of FileMaker and also what your thoughts are on add-ons. Interesting topics. The, um, the two-way JavaScript integration, I think, is, is fantastic. Um, it's the, the essence of it, or at its core, it's not really that new, right? We've been able to do this since FileMaker 14 in pretty much the same fashion as we do it now. But the current implementation since 19.0 is so much easier that it significantly lowers the, the threshold for people to get into it. Um, so it, it's great. I, I, I foresee that 
solid JavaScript skills are going to be essential uh, and to some extent become natural for Famica developers. Um, it, it's going to have that big of an impact. The um, uh, two, two ways of looking at that, right? Because and I, when we say two-way com uh, integration, it's the fact that from inside of Amica script, we can now call a JavaScript function. Uh, and then from inside that JavaScript function, we can call back and run a FileMaker script. Uh, so the, the integration and the handoff between the two technologies is, is seamless uh, and, and is fast too. Um, there's two big categories of things that I see happening uh, with there. One is going to be on the uh, UI side, right, where we can use the web viewer to render things that are somewhat difficult to do in FileMaker, things like uh, data tables, right, or pivot tables. Um, some very nice widgets that can supplement the way that we build our layouts. So that's going to be one important aspect. The second one is going to be purely computational, things that really don't have a UI, but where we can take advantage of the pure performance power, uh, computational performance power of the JavaScript engine. Um, things that... Uh, need to iterate over big chunks of text and parse it out. Um, just to, to name one example, are ideal to hand off to a JavaScript and have it done that way. Uh, and because it's all inside FileMaker, it's it's all native. It's all it's all right there. Um, so within Soliant, as part of, of sort of like the, the mentoring and the training up of everybody, we're putting a lot of emphasis on uh, on JavaScript skills. It's um, It's going to be really important. Yeah, I've already used it for one one uh, one of my projects. I'm already integrating the calendar right away. It's it's it for somebody who doesn't know JavaScript, and there's those people who will never know anything about JavaScript. Those add-ons allow you to do things that I couldn't do before. I couldn't make a decent calendar with FileMaker only. I really couldn't. And but if you have JavaScript skills, wow, it's just even that much more powerful. It's amazing. Exactly. If you um, if you download that Punisher that we talked about, there's two JavaScript integrations uh, built into it, um, and, and one of them is a, is a pivot table, right? I absolutely love the pivot tables in Excel because it allows you to slice and dice your data. You can look at it and say, I want to see how this particular FileMaker server deals across these versions with this script, right? And it's just a matter of dragging column headers and row headers around, and, and the data gets refreshed. Um, that's one of the things that we've always wanted in FileMaker. Now we have it inside FileMaker, right? It, this is no trickery or, or magic thing where we have to do something outside of FileMaker. It's all right there in FileMaker. And that's just JavaScript. That's not even with using an, an add-on. Um, add-ons um, add are really interesting um, because obviously they are meant to package functionality to make it portable so that you can give it to somebody or you download it or you buy it and you implement it in your solution. Uh, those add-ons don't need to contain anything to do with JavaScript, right? A lot of them do because JavaScript and the libraries like the calendar and, and some of these other things make a lot of sense, like a rich text editor, those kinds of things. But in essence, an add-on is really just a collection of, um, of Amica schema. Right, uh, you can make your you you can make an add-on with your five uh, with your favorite uh, sets of custom functions, um, or, or your favorite uh, set of starter layouts and scripts. Right, that could become an add-on as well, um, and and really bundle your your solution. I think what add-ons hint at is something that we we've seen mentioned by the Claris engineers for a while. There 
is um, the ability to create a bunch of XML that represents FileMaker schema and then have FileMaker ingest that XML and apply it to, to the schema that's already in the file, right? So, so that updater tool, if you will, or, or the diff and patch tool, once we, once we will have it, it'll use the exact same mechanisms as we now have with add-ons. So I'm really excited as, as to what add-ons are hinting at. Um, it's, a, it's a great thing. There's a couple of things that I think we have to keep in mind with add-ons. One is, um, I don't think they're completely done yet um, in the sense that if you set out to create your own add-on, it's still a very involved process. Uh, it, it's At this point, I wouldn't call it for the faint of heart. Um, it, it takes quite a bit of study to be able to create your own add-on. So that'll get better over time, obviously, as um, as we all get collectively more experience with it and Claris updates their documentation. The, um, the other thing that is probably a little unclear in my mind, uh, having played with it a little bit, is there's a number of let's call them problems that haven't been solved yet. Uh, things like version control or updates to add-ons, right? When, once you have an add-on installed and now there's a change to it or a new version of it, how do you go about getting that new one in and how does that play well with, uh, with the things that you have or potentially may already have modified in that schema of the original add-on? Um, and the other aspect that we shouldn't forget about that is security, right? Uh, we, uh, since an add-on can really bundle just about any piece of schema, uh, we have to make sure that we that we have a process by which we vet what's in those add-ons or have the ability to inspect an add-on to say, yep, I understand what's in there um, and I'm okay with having that add-on modify my file with everything that's there. Like show all and delete all records under in, in the form of a button, something like that. Exactly. The um, you could, if you wanted to, you can make an add-on that will, that siphons off all the schema and siphons off all the data. Right? Um, you can use internal uh, execute SQL against the uh, the FileMaker meta tables to 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 dump out all the schema definitions. You can do the same with data. Right? So so it really pays to uh, to to inspect an add-on as to what it adds. Yeah, I bet a lot of. A lot of people don't know that, and it's terrifying. <laughs> and we were just talking about that paradigm this morning with uh, Paul, who's doing all our videos for add-ons. We've got like eight or nine on YouTube at this point. We're exploring each one in great detail and really going under the hood on each. And uh, what we've, what the paradigm we just discussed this morning was exactly what you said to your first point, which was, you know, the renaming situation. Uh, a lot of the add-ons are called with perform script by name, which, you know we've been talking for years is always a dangerous proposition because it's not necessarily thing names change. And if names change, things break. So a lot of the add-ons that we've seen so far, uh, at least from Claris work in that paradigm and there's reasons for it. So the idea was, well, what if you created your own add-ons modified for your purposes, taking out perform script by name, but perform it through some other mechanism. Now you'd have your own suite of add-ons that are more customized to you um, that you could utilize. And I think those kinds of concepts now are just coming across many of our minds to say, wow, this is this is so much more than just a fancy something in the web viewer. It's a whole nother way of developing and deploying and understanding constructs and preferences and just 
it's uh it's really mind blowing to see where it could go. Absolutely. Uh, when um, we at Solion we're, we're building our own add-on to be the delivery mechanism for our Carafe or our JavaScript bundles. So instead of creating one add-on for each JavaScript bundle of functionality, we're actually building one that can deliver all these bundles into your file so that you don't have to install individual um, add-ons. Um, but one of the things we discovered speaks to your point there, Mark, is we found that we have to be extremely careful in how we name the schema elements that the add-on adds, right? So there's a really interesting conundrum there with namespacing. Because if, if our add-on, say, adds a script that is called uh, navigate, or just navigate, right? Uh, for It's a bit of a weird example. Um, but your solution already has a script that is called navigate. Then, of course, ours will come in as navigate2, right? But any scripts in our add-on um, will call the original navigate script. So now, all of a sudden, the, the add-on will break because we have a collision between names introduced by our add-on and whatever may exist already in your solution. Right. So that would, yeah, that is going to be interesting, especially if we take that to the future where we inject, you know, XML type, um, you know, schema into an existing live system. Yeah. Naming and internal IDs and all of that have to be considered. Uh, even another example is when you duplicate an add-on, it has a different UUID in a sense. Uh, so that may or may not work the same as copying and pasting an add-on or elements of an add-on. And it's all of these uh, things really open up a Pandora's box of things to consider. We are in a brave new world when it comes to FileMaker, I think. Yeah, I've been significantly modifying the calendar add-on, and I'm just being extremely careful about what I change. No table names are changing, no table occurrences, no field names. I am adding stuff on. I don't see an issue with that, how I could wreck it. I possibly could, but I'm being very careful about that because, uh, you know, these things rely on a lot of, uh, of things. You could just easily break something so easily. So just be careful out there when you're working with this stuff. Yeah, our recommendation is that if you have an add-on that you want to try out or, or that you already have your heart set to, to using, uh, try it out in a backup copy of your file first, right? Put it in, take it out, see what, what it adds, see what it takes out when you remove it so that you, you have a chance to play with it before you do this on, on your uh, production copy. Absolutely. That's exactly what I did is I made a copy of the database, did put the calendar add-on in there, sent it to my client, say, how do you like this? He says, it's looking good. I tried it out, works perfectly. Then I go, okay, then I'm comfortable continuing on with it. Even if it's even if it's authorized by FileMaker or Claris, it's, it's still something you should be concerned about uh, as far as putting the stuff in. And then especially when you modify it down the line, which I think a lot of people are going to start modifying. You can see a lot of modifications to the built-in uh, calendar and, and other uh, JavaScript add-ons. It'll be interesting to see. You know, a, a while back when you were talking about you love Excel's pivot tables and we can now do them in FileMaker, well, I'm one of these people, and John, I think, is with me on this. We both hate Excel and think it's just terrible piece of software. But whenever I say that, people always say to me, well, yeah, but we can do pivot tables. And I go, yeah, so what? And now they've got no leg to stand on. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I uh, Just to clarify that, I, I, I think what I don't like about Excel is that people abuse what it can do and try to make it into a database. And that's my issue with it. If you're just doing a spreadsheet, 
great. That's what it was designed to do. Anything beyond that, trying to do reporting and stuff like that, really is stretching its capabilities, and you should be moving to a database. And, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of spreadsheets at all. I don't use them hardly at all. That leads me to segue into another question, Wim, which is completely off topic and everything we're talking about. But as a FileMaker developer, how do you feel and where do you stand on the separation model? Because John and I hate it. Um, I don't have a strong opinion about it. Um, it's not something that that I or most of the projects within Solliant have adopted as sort of like a matter of course. Um, I think the, the benefits are obvious. Um, but in my experience, the um, in a lot in the places where we have inherited solutions where uh, the original developers uh, had embarked on on the data separation model, the promise, the core promise of the data separation model, I, I've re very rarely see it come come true, right? Because there's always changes that you have to make to the data file. It's almost never just a deployment of the um, of the UI file. And that's our basic issue with it. It, it doesn't solve any problems um, unless you just are updating a layout, adding a report or something like that. But ultimately, even when you add a report, you're probably going to add some kind of calculation field to organize the data on the records better or something or a summary field. You always end up modifying that data file. And so therefore, it becomes almost pointless. I'm not saying there's not, there's probably, I have, I have an opening of about 1% of the projects out there that might need something like that. But I know uh, developers who every single job they do is always separation model. I, I just see a problem with that because the whole basis of FileMaker is not to separate. It's designed that way. It's never meant to work that way. And so we've got to watch out uh, what people are saying out there. A lot of people are saying, oh yeah, a separation model is the greatest thing ever. Do it. It does this, it does that. But you know what? It actually takes and wastes your time. I, I despise working on systems that started out as a separation model. I try to avoid them at all costs because that separation model goes against what FileMaker is, which is simplicity in joining that data file and that interface file all into one file. It makes things much easier. And that's the point of a whole other blog that we've already covered in, but but the point is that, that you just got to watch out. It's just really, it, people are twisting a feature that to make it do separation that really wasn't designed to do separation. It was designed to do, to allow you to, to link other databases together, not to completely separate everything. It was allowing you to have a layout in another file on your system. Let's say you had marketing and sales, two separate solutions. FileMaker solutions, you want a little bit of data over there. You know, well, now you can put a layout over there that looks directly into that other database. That's what it's for. And, and so it's kind of the same thing as Execute SQL. People are often going out there and using it for far more than it was ever designed to do. And that's, I think, uh, sums up what the issue is with the separation model. It's not the solution for everything. It's a solution for a small number of cases. But, um, but if you had an opinion, you'd tell us, right? Right. <laughs> See, Michael knew it was going to happen when, when he said that. So. <laughs> the, um... Well, I didn't expect you to get a new soapbox, John. Well, I, I had, mean, I, I had could do that. Thought, exactly. So. No, it, it's it's good to 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 hear the opinions because uh, people can agree disagree with them. Um, the um, the the thing about uh, any of these sort of like big, big design decisions, right? Uh, we try not to be dogmatic about anything. And you're right about calling out execute SQL, data separation. There's a few other ones as well out there. 
things like anchor buoy or not anchor buoy for that matter. Um, we, we try to be pragmatic in everything that we do and not be dogmatic. Um, I just want to call out because we were talking about performance. The flip side of data separation isn't necessarily to build a whole solution in one file, right? Because I see way too many solutions that, that turn out to be 30, 40 gigs of monolithic files and then people ending up not, not doing any backups, right? Because every single backup needs 40 gigs worth of disk space. It, it totally negates the benefits you can get from how efficient FileMaker Server is with backups and, and hard linking and, and all of that. So, um, so we typically don't create solutions that are single files, but we don't make that split between files based on UI versus data. We basically try to find which data tables will have the fewest updates. Uh, so basically static data versus dynamic data and, and all of these things. Um, but um, I'm not a big fan of big monolithic files either. And the argument for having separation model is less and less with the new tools, uh, data migration assistant and things like that. All of those kinds of things kind of negate the original promise of what the data separation model was trying to accomplish. Wim, do you find that your involvement with the Claris platform extends well beyond the eight to five time frame? Do you find yourself kind of doing this 10 to 16 hours a day and on weekends? I'm just curious because we always wonder, how does Wim do it all? Uh, it's 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 funny. It's a conversation that I have often uh, with so with the people that I mentor. Um, it it ties into some of the things that we touched on uh, earlier. Uh, one is the fact that we have such a great community, and, and and why do I spend so much time on that? It's a question that I get often. Same with why do you write these things or why do you speak at DefCon? Why are you giving it uh, so much away for free? Um, and this conversation goes back with friendly colleagues going back 20 years where I say, no, I want to get paid for what I do. So why would I give it away for free? Um, when I got going in the Famica community or, or with the Famica platform, and we're talking again, mid nineties, right? When, when I had that first big customer um, and I had no intention, first off, I had no intention of working with Famica ever, right? I came from the Windows world with VB6 and Access and SQL Server. Um, and literally when, when I, had sold the two owners of the company on, on that first big project. It was one of those uh, <laughs> one of those Steve Jobs moments, right? I was literally had the contract in my pocket. I was walking out the door. I was elated. I was at the door, and one of the two owners turns around and say, "Oh, by the way, um, anything you, you you make for us, it has to run on my Mac too, right?" And I'm going like that. That's impossible. Right? There's nothing that runs on both Mac and Windows. And again, we're talking mid-90s, right? So Mac wasn't, and Apple wasn't really popular. Um, and I wasn't aware of anything that, that ran on both. So uh, uh, I was forced to learn FileMaker. And, and I didn't enjoy it at first, but I came to enjoy its true powers and its true, um, it, what, what, it's really, really, what it's really strong at. Um, and, and that's the reason that I'm still here. Um, so when I went through those initial kicking and screaming and, and, and cursing the Famica platform, I discovered the, the community and I had nothing but questions. And you had all these people that are still there, like Stephen Blackwell was there, Anne Verinder was there, Beverly Vault was there, and they were friendly. They answered all my questions. They got me through that learning curve in record speed so that I could produce that first uh, solution. Um, that's also the backstory, by the way, of some of those early uh, white papers, like Famica versus Axis and and doing networking, uh, all of that stuff. I, I, 
I immense I felt an immense debt of gratitude towards the people that helped me. Uh, so I set out to do the same thing. So in essence, what I'm doing now is I'm just paying it forward for all the help that I uh, that I got. So for me, I truly enjoy technology and 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 waking up every day and figuring out uh, what to do with that. And I try to extend my day so that I'm not just knee deep into actual project work where you just have to solve that one problem that's in front of you. I want to make sure that I have sufficient time to to play. And play for me is research, right? Um, playing with different technologies like Node.js and React and, and .NET and, and all of these things, seeing what I can learn and how those concepts apply to the work that I do in the Famic space. Um, the other aspect of that is, um, you know that book from uh, Malcolm Gladwell? Um, I forget the, the name of the book, but it's the book where he describes that it takes 10,000 hours to become proficient at anything. Um, it's something that I bring up often when, when I talk to the people that I mentor. Um, if you want to become good at something, you have to spend the time on it. Um, and it has to be it has to be dedicated time and it has to be deliberate time. And that's one of the other reasons why I like being in the community so much, right? Because I, I get up, I don't know, I get up at 5.30 in the morning. I'm at my desk at 6. Um, and the first thing I do is I read the community uh, uh, blog posts. Uh, not blog posts, but questions. And I, I do that for two reasons. One, I want to see if I can help somebody. But the second thing is that those things are great. They're, they're bite-sized problems, right? It's not a three-month effort to, to write out a spec and then figure out how to solve it. It's a bite-sized problem. So I can think about how I would solve that problem. I don't necessarily need to answer it, the question, but I can read somebody else's answers and go like, would I have solved it in the same way? Um, and once in a while, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks, there's going to be something out there that blows me away where I go like, I would not have solved it that way. I would not even have thought of solving it that way. Um, so it's a nugget of information. It's a small enough problem that I, I don't have to spend hours on it. And I can pretty much do it anytime I want. If I want to take a quick break, I can read what's there. Um, it's one of the other reasons that I like participating in the community so much. Um, so to answer your question, that was a long answer, but the short answer is my days are typically, I don't know, six to six thereabouts, so 12 hours. Um, I, I do play in the weekends. Uh, I try, obviously, I try to make time uh, for the family and, and, and other things, but doing this kind of work is not a chore for me. It's, uh, it's something that I really enjoy doing. And I've often compared it to, I get the same pleasure out of doing this work as I get from playing a good game of chess or, or reading a good book and trying to figure out the whodunit, right? So for me, it's the same kind of pleasure. So it's not a chore. I, I absolutely love it. Right. Thanks for thanks for answering that. I think I think your feelings on the platform, uh, I, I can share those and I, I'm sure John and Mike probably feel that way as well in terms of the joy we get out of either programming a FileMaker, learning something new, or just discovering an architecture on how to solve a problem. Yeah, it's a great way to get your brain in gear, absolutely. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.